Hello, everyone, and welcome to Carpet City Cinema, a Gila Films podcast. I'm David Weaver, and you're about to hear the last of the legacy episodes, the episodes of this podcast that I originally recorded over a year ago when I was testing out the whole format and how it worked. I had another busy week, so I just thought I'd pop this in. Um, hope you enjoy listening to it. Uh, talk about some uh, then-current <laughs> film festival news for The Last Frankenstein, which is now ancient. Um, but before we get into it, I just want to give a big shout-out to Jay Leonard, our producer extraordinaire of The Last Frankenstein, whose recent film, Break Glass, um, we've talked about it being on the film festival circuit, and it just was accepted into the Buffalo Dreams Fantastic Film Festival, which, as our Franken fans may remember, was a film uh, event that our movie, our Fright Flick, The Last Frankenstein, also played at and won a Best New York State feature at. Uh, that's a film festival that's uh, one of the driving creative forces behind it is filmmaker Gregory Lamberson, who um, fans of cult cinema know as the director of films like Slime City. And uh, I actually went out to that film festival in person. It was one of the couple I was able to attend live and had a really great time. Both the uh, event organizers and personnel and the audience were just really supportive, really engaged. Um, it was th- That was the first film festival not just the first film festival for my movie I'd ever been to. I think it was the first film festival, pretty much. I mean, I had been to one years ago. There was one about 15 years ago I went to that was local, but that was the one I really, first one I ever really went to and really just uh, experienced, and uh, it was an excellent time that I had there. So I'm really excited that uh, Jay's going to have this opportunity there, that Break Glass at Film is going to be screening there, and I know he's planning to attend, um, and that's in August. So just... Uh, Follow his social media apps, Break Glass Movie on Facebook and the other apps to stay tuned with that. All right, without further ado, here is the last of the legacy episodes of Carpet City Cinema. Hey everyone, welcome to Carpet City Cinema. A Gila Films podcast. I'm David Weaver, and we're coming up on a film festival weekend for our feature film, The Last Frankenstein. Today, the day I'm recording this is February 15th, and this upcoming weekend, February 18th through the 20th, is the Mad Monster Party Film Festival, which is part of the Mad Monster Party convention down in Concord, North Carolina. And this is a really good opportunity for our movie. You know, some film festivals you submit to specifically because you want to get eyes on your movie from possible distributors. Some film festivals, it's the prestige, the status of being able to have your film in that festival or perhaps get awards from it because then that can um, elevate possibilities for your movie to get picked up down the road. And sometimes it's just you know, about bringing your film to new audiences. And the Mad Monster Party convention that this, that this festival is part of uh, falls into that latter category. This is an event that has a really substantial following. So, you know, it does have awards. It does have um, a prestige to it. But really, I think more than anything, the, the reason I want to submit to this festival is just to get our film before a whole new audience. A lot of the people who have been following The Last Frankenstein and supporting us, which we just so greatly appreciate, that's been in the local community. And while that's uh, done so much to keep our film alive and to um, set us up for successful future projects, we also want to broaden that audience base, you know, and get in uh, hopefully fans from other parts of the country, the world. This is... uh, that kind of an opportunity really to kind of uh, bring the film to a whole new audience down in North Carolina. And this is not going to have a virtual component to this festival. So this is really just going to be, you know, putting people in the seats at this event and uh, then watching the movie and get it, you know, hopefully they'll like it, enjoy it. But either way, whether they do or they don't, at least we'll get it before them. So that's coming up this weekend. So pretty exciting. There, there is an awards ceremony on this uh, festival, so we'll see if anything comes of that too. That'd be a great honor. But again, just having the film there um, and the chance to engage with these people is, is really key. And of course, like I've continued to mention, 
we have our theatrical screening coming up uh, locally at the Madison Theater in Albany. And again, uh, another opportunity to just in our own region uh, maybe bring some new Franken fans on board. Now, the Mad Monster Party Convention, they've got a pretty solid guest list of uh, people who will be attending that convention. Uh, Kane Hodder, who is probably the definitely the actor most recognized for playing Jason Voorhees in the Friday the 13th films, will be there. Felissa Rose from uh, Sleepaway Camp. John Russo, who co-wrote the original Night of the Living Dead. Robert Carradine, who, of course, I'm a huge fan of the Carradine family. And Robert actually is probably best known for his non-horror films because he was in the Revenge of the Nerds movies and you know, the whole another generation knows him uh, from Lizzie McGuire. But like many people in his family, his career goes way back to the 70s. And he was in some horror films like Orca, which is a really fun Jaws ripoff. He did a couple of John Carpenter's later films, too. But, yeah, really just a really top uh, lineup they've got there for uh, guests. So pretty good opportunity for people to uh, see our film, meet some icons of the genre, and just uh, hopefully have a great time. So, yeah, next weekend that's coming up. Of course, this episode probably won't air till substantially after that festival's come and gone. Maybe by the time you listen to this, we'll know whether or not we uh, won anything there. Speaking of genre icons, to me, genre icon, I was sad to see that actually this happened last summer, but only is just kind of starting to make the rounds now. That actress June Kenny, age 87, passed away last June. Kenny was a star of uh, low-budget films of the 50s and into the early 60s. She did several films for Roger Corman, starring in Teenage Doll, Sorority Girl, and the tongue twister of a title, The Saga of the Viking Woman and Their Voyage to the Waters of the Great Sea Serpent. And those were films that Roger Corman directed, but she also appeared in one that he just produced, which was Hot Car Girl. And she also did a couple films with Burt I. Gordon, who, after Corman, is kind of the... uh, exploitation auteur I'm most associated with the uh, boom of V-movies in the late 50s, I think. Um, she appeared in Attack of the Puppet People and Earth versus the Spider for Gordon. And Earth versus the Spider was the first film I saw of June Kenny, and she just became one of those faces that I associated with uh, 50s horror and low-budget B-movies. She also appeared in Bloodlust, which was shot in 1959, but not released till 61, which I enjoy a lot. It's a um, exploitation, low-budget take on the famous short story, The Most Dangerous Game. And like the 1930s adaptation of that story of the same name, also titled The Most Dangerous Game, which uh, starred Joel McRae and Fay Ray, uh, Bloodlust also had some kind of surprising somewhat for the time, obviously tamed by today's standards, uh, gore shots and uh, depictions of uh, bodies. And I always found it to be a fun film. It's obviously gone into a more infamous reputation after being riffed by Mystery Science Theater 3000 and also kind of has a footnote for being one of Robert Reed, Reed's early films, Mike Brady of the Brady Bunch. But Kenny, uh, she also appeared in... uh, a bunch of TV shows at the time had roles in The Millionaire and showed up in uh, Public Defender, Fireside Theater, Bonanza. But she ended up retiring from acting in the early 60s, even though she was still very young. But she found it very difficult to break out of the uh, B-movie world because of her association with those roles. In an interview, she stated... It's hard to grow out of it. When you go on an interview and your past credits are reviewed and all they see is teenage this and monster that, it's a turnoff. They do consider your past credits and those sort of pictures don't help the situation. But she uh, ended up moving out to Nevada where she and her husband uh, had a horse ranch and she did stay active in uh, radio broadcasting. And then, yes, just passed away. This last June, June 25th, 2021. We also recently lost filmmaker Alfred 
Soul, age 78. Soul is probably best known for having directed and co-written the 1976 horror movie Alice, Sweet Alice, which also has a footnote in film history for being the uh, feature film debut of Brooke Shields. Now, prior to that, he actually, I just was reading about this today with his obituary, he actually wanted to make his film debut with a Western and was approached by an investor who said, well, if you make an adult film for me with my money, then uh, after that, I will produce a Western for you. I will finance a Western. So his first film was actually an adult film titled Deep Sleep, but the movie ended up running to uh, problems with the authorities. Um, the prints of it were confiscated. The movie was pulled from theaters, and Soul even faced some obscenity charges. So the Western never happened either, needless to say. But after Alice, Sweet Alice, he directed two more feature films, the uh, cult <laughs> 80s movie Tanya's Island, which pairs vanity up in a relationship with an ape, and then the horror spoof Pandemonium, which Vinegar Syndrome put out on Blu-ray not terribly long time ago. But he then transitioned really into a career in production design, which is where he kind of made his bread and butter for the for the rest of his career. I mean, he did do a little bit of writing in the 80s as well for TV. He wrote episodes of Friday the 13th, the series, Hotel, the 80s Alfred Hitchcock Presents, but it was really production design where he stayed for the remainder of his career, right up till just a couple of years ago. He worked on shows like Veronica Mars, the MacGyver reboot, Castle, um, some film credits too, uh, like S. Darko, the much panned sequel to Donnie Darko, Wishmaster 2, Glory Days, a lot of TV movie work in there too. But yeah, he just passed away. His Survivors include his cousin, Dante Tomaselli, who some might know as a horror filmmaker who made the movies Desecration and Satan's Playground, and who's been trying to get a remake of Alice, Sweet Alice, off the ground for a little while. I'm not sure if that's uh, made any progress or not. Another passing was of actress Nancy Berg, age 90, who was better known as a model. She... uh, was very successful in that. She was featured in Vogue and Life, but she did do some uh, dramatic acting throughout the, mostly the 50s and 60s. Uh, I, I know her from her role in Failsafe, the famous uh, nuclear war film from 1964, where she gets very aggressively rebuffed uh, in her romantic overtures towards Walter Matthau. And she also appeared in the low-budget racing movie Thunder and Dixie, Showed up on television series such as Perry Mason, Ben Casey, The Doctors. Pretty much after the mid-60s, though, she stopped acting up until she made one more uh, appearance in 1980 in the pilot TV movie for the Michael Learned show Nurse. She was a very uh, avid chess player as well. Had a really tough personal life, though. Uh, married three times, and each one did not go well. Uh, her first marriage was to actor Jeffrey Horn, who was best known for being the young uh, male lead in the Bridge on the River Kwai, who goes on the uh, who is sent on the mission to destroy the bridge along with Jack Hawkins and William Holden. And Berg claimed that he basically left her and their child high and dry, abandoned them, took all the money. Her second marriage. Um, was to a doctor who she uh, claimed uh, abused her and her child physically. And then her last marriage uh, kind of uh, also brought its own problems because it came with a stepson who uh, very viciously attacked her, uh, requiring plastic surgery and lost several teeth. So had a really kind of rough um, personal life in there. But very again, very successful uh, modeling career and also some acting there in the 50s and 60s. We also lost two very, very well-known pioneering visual effects artists uh, just recently. Douglas Trumbull passed away, age 79, and he really came on the scene with his work on 2001, A Space Odyssey. And for some of the developments he pioneered in the field, he was given 
uh, an Academy Award, as well as a Lifetime Achievement Award, also nominated for his visual effects works on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Star Trek The Motion Picture, and Blade Runner. Uh, he also worked on the effects for such films as The Andromeda Strain, uh, Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life, and he both worked on the effects for and produced, was a producer on the 70s TV series The Star Lost. He also directed two films, the Bruce Stern science fiction movie uh, Silent Running, uh, which is a cult classic, and also the basic premise of which inspired uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 of A Man on a Space Station with Robots, and the 1983 movie Brainstorm, uh, which was well-received, but unfortunately um, its legacy has been overshadowed by the fact that it was the film that Natalie Wood was starring in at the time of her death. And the other uh, iconic visual effects artist to pass away was Robert Blaylack, age 73. Blaylack was one of the uh, effects artists brought onto the original 1977 Star Wars. And uh, when George Lucas made that film at 20th Century Fox, he wanted, obviously, the, you know, the state-of-the-art effects, and Fox really didn't even have an effects department. So Blaylack was uh, one of the artists who came aboard and, as such, was a co-founder of Industrial Light and Magic, the uh, effects company that uh, George Lucas uh, founded. And for his work on Star Wars, he won an Academy Award in visual effects and also went on to take home an Emmy Award for his uh, contributions to the classic 1983 TV movie, The Day After. Also worked on such films as the 1982 Cat People remake, Altered States, Wolfen, uh, Airplane, Robocop, uh, from the original from 1987, and uh, Carl Sagan's groundbreaking miniseries Cosmos. Also did some work on commercials and in uh, theme park attractions. And finally, we also lost director Ivan Reitman, age 75, uh, titan of the comedy genre, especially in the 80s and 90s. Reitman directed um, both of the first two Ghostbusters movies, and that was uh, those were two of several collaborations he had with actor Bill Murray. He really turned Bill Murray into a leading man because he gave him his first starring role in uh, Meatballs. And they also did Stripes together as well. He also was the guy who showed Arnold Schwarzenegger could be a comedic actor with uh, such films as Twins, Junior, and Kindergarten Cop. Some of the other flicks that he helmed were the Robert Redford movie Legal Eagles, the Kevin Klein comedy Dave, and the uh, Harrison Ford a box office hit Six Days, Seven Nights, Often thought of as a, uh, a pillar of the Canadian film scene, which he was, but he's actually, though, born in Czechoslovakia and uh, moved, though, to Canada at a young age. Um, he also had a really long career as a producer. Um, some of the credits include a couple of David Cronenberg's early movies, Rabid and Shivers, as well as National Lampoon's Animal House, Road Trip, uh, Private Parts, both of the Space Jam movies, uh, early entries in the uh, Beethoven family uh, film franchise, and more recently uh, collaborated on a couple of his son's films, Jason Reitman, the director. Uh, they both were producers on Jason's film Up in the Air, which earned Ivan and Jason, Jason a Best Picture Academy Award nominee, nomination, as well as uh, nominations for Jason for Director and Screenplay. And they collaborated on the most recent Ghostbusters film, Ghostbusters Afterlife. So one of those filmmakers who's just completely comes part and parcel with any uh, recollections of the 1980s and what that, what that decade meant for film. Some interesting developments for fans of Orson Welles have uh, popped up recently, including the discovery of a lost Orson Welles short film. Now, back in the early 70s, um, 1970 to be specific, Welles uh, shot six short films for Cartravision, which was a forerunner of VHS. It was a, a home video format. And he directed and wrote these six short films, only one of which 
was to believe was believed to still exist. But recently, the estate of Orson Welles uh, purchased at auction uh, two more of the short films. They have found copies of them. Uh, one of them, unfortunately, once they got their hands on it, was erased. There was nothing left on it. But the other one, which is titled Two Wise Old Men, Socrates and Noah, was intact. Now, this is basically kind of like a talking headpiece that Wells made. It's him kind of sitting inside a house and then later on standing outside and just, um, and he relates these stories of Socrates and Noah. Interestingly, Wells had wanted to make a film about Noah earlier in his career. He had written a script called Two by Two, but uh, never got off the ground. Uh, No pun intended, I guess. The film runs 18 minutes long. Like I said, a short movie. Always cool to see these uh, lost works turn up. You know, George Romero, they recently uh, found uh, a film he made called Amusement Park. Um, just really cool, though, that when, especially like with a, considering how many films, especially in the silent era, are lost completely, it's really gratifying when uh, one of these can be unearthed. And also, speaking of Orson Welles' lost films. The hunt continues for Welles' original vision of his second directorial effort, second feature-length directorial effort, The Magnificent Ambersons. So a little backstory on this. This is the film he directed after Citizen Kane. And his original cut of it ran over two hours long, about 131 minutes. And he was working on post-production on Ambersons. While he was down in South America in Brazil, shooting a movie called It's All True. And RKO, the studio that made uh, Ambersons, as well as Wells' first feature film, Citizen Kane, the uh, classic uh, movie, they sent down um, copies of Ambersons, as well as the movie Journey into Fear, which Wells had produced and co-written and starred in, so that he could work on the editing of these movies while he was shooting It's All True. But in his absence from uh, Cali, <laughs> from Hollywood, the preview of Ambersons did not go over well with audiences. So the studio ended up uh, shortening the movie drastically to like just under 90 minutes, and they reshot the ending. And this was without any involvement from Wells. So even though what we were left with is still considered this classic, the Criterion just released uh, Criterion Collection just released it on Blu-ray a while back. It's always uh, been wondered what Wells' original take on the movie was. And that footage, unfortunately, the actual film elements for that footage that was cut out of the movie uh, have long since, were long since trashed by the studio. But there w- was a rumor, that, a belief, I should say, that maybe a copy of this uh, longer cut might still exist in Brazil. The reason being that um, RKO... They had instructed Cinedia Studios in Rio de Janeiro, which is the uh, studio that Wells was operating out of in South America. They told this studio, uh, just junk everything. Everything you've got of Ambersons and Journey into Fear that's there, just trash it. But Cinedia was owned by a gentleman named Adhermar Gonzaga. And he told, he did tell Archeo that he had done what they said, but he was a really really well known not just as this uh, owner of the studio, but also just as a film lover. And documentary filmmaker Joshua Grossberg, uh, about uh, 25 years ago, he was on a trip to Brazil and um, met a guy who worked at the Cinedia archives in the late 50s and early 60s, a gentleman named uh, Michel do Espirito Santo, who had reported to Grossberg that he saw a Wells an Orson Welles film print in a film can uh, back when he worked at the uh, studio, which would have been you know, significantly uh, some time after uh, those elements should have been trashed. Now, Santo could not confirm or deny what this print was, what was on it, but if there is any hope that a copy of Welles' original version of this movie, Magnificent Ambersons, exists, then it would be in Brazil. So Grossberg, he teamed up with Turner Classic Movies, and they've decided to uh, partner together 
to fund uh, an expedition, basically, uh, a uh, cinematic archaeological expedition to see if this uh, film can be found down in South America. Um, it's called the, uh, kind of referred to as the Lost Print uh, Team, this, this partnering of Grossberg and uh, TCM. And Grossberg uh, went down to South America last year and uh, returned sometime, I think, uh, November-ish, and said that he had developed some, uh, definitely some good leads uh, in his trip there. And he needed to get some uh, permissions to uh, visit a uh, major film archive, which he did. And that his return is scheduled for, was scheduled for late January, early February. So, you know, I'm recording this podcast on February 16th. So as far as I know right now, I, uh, no news has developed on this front. A really good place to uh, follow these kind of stories about Orson Welles is at the website uh, wellsnet.com. But nothing new has uh, popped up, so not sure if he did finally get down there, uh, if he's found anything or not found anything. Of course, with COVID, I'm sure um, a lot of this is... Uh, a lot of this traveling may uh, have to be rearranged, but would be fascinating if they could find um, this missing cut of this film. You know, they were able to reconstruct uh, Wells' original version of uh, his movie Touch of Evil. Um, of course, they just finished uh, his film The Other Side of the Wind a couple years ago. Um, so to to finally take this uh, sophomore, his sophomore directorial effort and, and put it back to a, where he had originally had it, just at least compare the two, that would be be amazing, honestly. It would be a huge, one of the biggest uh, lost film finds in, in some time, I imagine. Now turning to physical media, things that have been announced or released. Just dropped today, actually, and I'm really excited for this. Um, Sony is going to release on 4K UHD the 1972 musical, historical musical, 1776. Now, this is uh, one of my favorite films, uh, one of my favorite musicals. It's it's a really great movie. Um, I love you know the musical genre as much as any other. You know when you when you really have a, a classic of that of that genre. But the the trick with musicals, though, I think why for me personally, there's there's not too many I would refer to as classics for myself. Is because you have to find a film that not only is the story engaging, but also the songs themselves are memorable. I mean, it's kind of like reminds you of, you know, the trick with comedy. There are a number of films that I consider comedy classics, but not to the, maybe to the same degree as other genres, because with the comedy, you know, a lot of times you'll have a comedy that has some really funny jokes in it, but if you if you weigh those as a percentage of the overall uh, amount of jokes or humor in the movie, they might be a very small, or maybe the humor's engaging, but the story's really trivial or boring. And that can happen with musicals too, where it's like either uh, you know maybe the story's engaging, but the songs are unmemorable, or vice versa. So it's it's tricky I, uh, for me personally uh, to walk away from a musical and say, okay, that was really great. And there are some, you know, Wizard of Oz is one of my favorite movies of all time. I really love the sound of music. But others, not so much, you know. But 1776, this is a film we'll probably take a deeper dive into around the 4th of July because that's when I watch it, and this uh, release will be in time, out in time for that. It's just an incredibly well-acted uh, film, great performances all around. Um, it's funny. It's uh, engaging over its entire three-hour length. Um, just really uh, an unheralded classic, I think, because you know it's generally regarded as a good film, a solid film. That's the takeaway that most people have. I think it's a bit underrated in that sense. I think it's really on that upper level of classic musicals and really deserves that kind of attention. So cool that that's finally going to get um, a release on UHD. They already had a really solid Blu-ray of it uh, from a 4K scan, but this will be nice to see that extra bump in quality. All right, so... Let's now take a very, very, very deep dive. Very deep because this is going to be about a film that most people have probably never heard of. Um, into a film I just watched for the first time the other night. And this is a 1974 TV movie called Panic on the 522. 
And this is about um, three guys, three friends, um, who used to be in their younger days members of the same street gang called the Serpents, who are living these kind of uh, low-life, dead-end, blue-collar existences, who decide to make it big, get their break, by holding up a luxury car on the 522 commuter train out of New York. And like I said, this is not uh, even one of the better-known TV movies of its era. It had a VHS release from Good Times, which is how I watched it. But not only is it never seen a DVD release or anything like that, it's not even on YouTube, uh, which is pretty surprising. Usually these at least find their way there, even if it's in crappy quality. Um, just a couple of bootlegs out there you can uh, track down on DVD if, if you really uh, want to see it after hearing my thoughts on it. I love 70s TV movies, though big surprise there but aside from just the things i like about any 70s movie you know the uh the decor the production design wardrobe the thing about the tv movies is they're this great crossroads of talent where you'll have these veterans of the golden age of hollywood show up in a in a production that will also have people who are popular and television at the time and then maybe throw in um some future film stars just starting out it's this great mixture of different levels of talent. You know, I guess a random example that just comes to my head, there's a 70s uh, TV movie called Murder on Flight 502. It's a kind of like an airline disaster movie, and it's got you know, Walter Pigeons in it and Ralph Bellamy, whose careers, you know, they've been around forever, going back to like the 30s, Academy Award-nominated actors. It's also, though, has Danny Bonaducci, who's kind of a hot-at-the-moment member of the cast coming from the Partridge family. It's got Farrah Fawcett as her star is starting to rise. It has also, though, Brooke Adams before she really hit it with uh, films like Days of Heaven and Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So just really cool to see all these people coming from these different classes of uh, acting in terms of their success, where, where they were on their trajectory, all in the same project together. And that happens a lot in 70s TV movies with this decade. So let's just take a probably what someone says an unnecessarily <laughs> intensive look at the uh, this film. And starting off just with the characters, we'll start with our three holdup men. So we've got Robert Walden of TV's Lou Grant. He plays Eddie, who's the guy who kind of concocts this entire robbery scheme. He's working a job as a delivery guy for a liquor store, and when making a delivery to the train car. Um, sees that these are very uh, wealthy, successful people, and they would uh, make great targets, a great opportunity to kind of rob them and uh, take their spoils to start a new life for him and his two friends. James Sloyan is Frankie. Sloyan worked mostly in TV, just a long history as a character actor, popped up in several of the uh, Star Trek franchises, had a recurring role on Murder, She Wrote, and... Film-wise, probably best remembered for playing Matola, who is uh, Robert Shaw's hood, who gets rolled by, uh, conned, I should say, by Robert Redford at the beginning of The Sting, and that kind of kicks off events in that films. And he's kind of the unhinged one in this trio, uh, more so as time progresses in the film, and there's uh, an allusion to the fact that he might have, have some mental health issues, like legit ones, uh, at the beginning of the film, uh, he visits a priest who asks him if he's still having his headaches. And then last of the three is Rennie Santoni. Um, you might know him depending on your where you sit with cop films as either the partner to Dirty Harry in the first Dirty Harry film or the partner to Sylvester, St- Sylvester Stallone in Cobra. But he plays Emil, who's a dim-witted sort of fellow, very much in the vein of Lenny from Of Mice and Men. And now, who are they going to rob? Who are the people who ride this train? Well, we've got Lawrence Luckenbill and Linda Day George playing a married couple. Now, I love Linda Day George. Uh, you know, Mission Impossible, she was on that, and then just made a slew of films with her real-life husband, Christopher George, uh, including two of my favorite uh, late 70s, early 80s horror movies, Day of the Animals and Pieces. And Lawrence Luckenbill... Again, a character actor, just a working character actor, probably best remembered for his roles in the films, The Boys in the Band, 
and then Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, where he played the film's antagonist, Cybok, Spock's half-brother. And in real life, Luck and Bill, still with us, is the husband of Lucy Arnaz, uh, Lucy and Desi's daughter. And Luck and Bill, he plays an advertising executive, and uh, he and George kind of had this troubled uh, marriage where she relieves her boredom by picking up strange men and sleeping with them in CD hotels. Dana Elkar, of, also was in this thing, but of TV's MacGyver, plays Hal Rogers, who's the bigwig at a uh, computer company. And Lyndon Childs, the, yet again, another very prolific character actor. I always associate him with one of my favorite 80s movies, Cloak and Dagger, where he plays the uh, airport security chief at the film's climax. He plays Tony, Tony Ebsen, who's basically Dana Elkar's right-hand man. We've got Dennis Patrick of Dark Shadows fame and who starred in the classic 1970 movie Joe, kind of playing a variation on his character from that movie. He plays uh, in this film Dudley Stevenson, who uh, runs uh, a charity and kind of decides who gets money from this charity and kind of somewhat key to the developing plot of uh, this TV movie is that he uh, has recently acquired through an auction a Stradivarius violin. Also on board the train is Edward Franz, the character actor, the older character actor whose career started in the late 40s. He kind of started a little later in life, um, in his mid to late 40s himself, but then racked up a whole bunch of uh, really impressive films right out the gate from uh, playing one of these scientists in the original version of The Thing, The Thing from Another World. He played Von Stauffenberg in The Desert Fox, and in this movie he plays uh, Jerry, who's a businessman whose business really isn't well defined. It sounds like it's uh, of a fine, you know, something in the world of finances, but whose character also is very much someone who appreciates culture. And he uh, shares some scenes with Stuart Moss, um, another prolific uh, character actor in TV and film in the 70s, who plays Joe, probably the least defined, least uh, sketched out character in this whole film. Again, he's pairs the appears to be in some kind of financial business. They don't really get into it too much. And we're going to come back to that, kind of like some of the stranger aspects uh, of this script about almost like there's gaps in it. Andrew Duggan, yet again, another veteran character actor with a great gravelly voice, an actor who I always uh, immediately conjure up the image of him playing the original uh, John Walton in the TV movie The Homecoming, which later led to the series The Waltons, where Ralph Waite took on the role. And uh, horror movie fans will know Duggan from his many collaborations with filmmaker Larry Cohen, such as uh, Bone, It's Alive, A Return to Salem's Lot. He plays General Harlan Garner, who is a former military general who works for the banking industry, but still is involved in military activities going on in South America. And this uh, results in him losing his job as the bank uh, wants to avoid uh, having their reputation uh, tarnished by what he's participating in. And playing his uh, paramour is Ina Ballin as Countess Hedy Tovarese, who is a cosmetics queen. And Balan's probably the closest thing this movie has to a traditional film star. She came up in the uh, late 50s, early 60s, and worked in some studio project uh, products such as uh, Martin Ritz, The Black Orchid. She was in Michael Curtiz's Western, The Comancheros, with John Wayne. And actually won the Golden Globe for uh, Most Promising Newcomer for the Paul Newman, Joanne Woodward drama from the Terrace. But pretty much, you know, by uh, the end of the 60s, was starting to really just move strictly into TV work and sadly died at, at a pretty young age, only 52 when she passed away in 1990 uh, from pulmonary hypertension. And last of the passengers is Bernie Casey. Uh, you know, the great Bernie Casey. Gotta love him as the head gargoyle in the classic 1970s TV movie uh horror TV film Gargoyles, but who appeared in everything from you know, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure to playing 
Felix Slater in Never Say Never Again. He showed up in some black exploitation films in the 70s, and he plays a professional basketball player, uh, Wendell Weaver, in the movie. And uh, to top things off, there's Charles Lampkin. Yet again, another veteran character actor uh, who plays George, who is the, uh, the car's bartender. And Lampkin, he, he made his film debut back in the early 50s and probably uh, what, if anyone would say, is his best-remembered role playing one of the uh, survivors of an apocalyptic event in Arch Obuller's movie 5. So there you have it. That's your uh, passengers, your, uh, your bandits. And even though I just was selling 1970s TV movies on the basis of their... Um, providing an intersection of performers of different uh, star calibers. As you can tell from my breakdown of the cast here, this is really a film that's basically all, all character actors, all character performers. I mean, you have you do have, like I said, Ina Ballon, Linda Day George, closest to uh, the, the two who are closest to having any kind of uh, movie star status. But this one really is just about veteran performers uh, filling all the roles. The movie starts off on a Monday and then works its way uh, through the work week, uh, introducing us to the various characters before we uh, conclude at Friday, which is when the actual heist takes place. And the film starts and closes with narration. And this this film doesn't really enjoy any kind of great lasting reputation, probably explaining why it's partially why it's never had any post VHS release. And even though I enjoyed watching it, uh, how could you not? I can see why people might not love this film, um, starting with its identity crisis. Like I said, it's got this narration, which is kind of setting the stage for this to be kind of uh, a robbery that represents a class struggle between the uh, entitled, uh, apathetic rich who travel through the slums in their posh commuter car and the people of the streets just struggling to get by who uh, bring the horrors of street life into their world. And... Even the closing narration acts like you've just seen that movie. But when you're actually watching the film, the problem is is that for the most part, these people who ride this commuter car, they're really not terribly unlikable. Yeah, they're successful, you know, but they're not um, self-righteous terribly. I mean, the Robert Mandan's character, the doctor, they show him uh, being in the hospital, being called to a meeting and refusing to go right away because he's trying to save the life of a patient. Um, Bernie Casey's basketball player. Uh, we see him leaving an arena to, to grab a taxi to the train. And he spends some time talking to uh, a kid uh, who you can tell doesn't really have a lot of money and is just, uh, you know, trying to get by. Um, and this is, a, you know, uh, stands in stark contrast to our three holdup men who kind of just come across like idiots. Like, they don't really represent um, the kind of uh, seething masses as much as they do just kind of incompetence who really are kind of to blame themselves for where they are in life. Um, and the robbery itself, this is something you see in uh, people's critique of this film. The robbery itself is pretty stupid. It's kind of one of the interesting parts of the script is that they break into this car and you know, take the jewelry from people, things like that, but they quickly come to realize that none of these people really carry a lot of cash. You know, they have their money given to their uh, financial advisors and they get a little bit of cash drilled out to them just to get through the week. But whereas our um, criminals were hoping to make a big score, there really isn't much to be had in the way to way of uh, hard currency, which is where um, Dennis Patrick having won a, his character having won a Stradivarius at an auction comes into play because that turns out to be kind of the main thing of value uh, on this car is this antique worth six figures in, in 1974 money. The idea behind the robbery, the actual plan of it, is also problematic, although that's, I think, um, less of all the characters as much as the writers, because the idea is that once the uh, criminals break into this car, the conductor isn't supposed to come back through for a 45-minute time period during which they would be alone with uh, their victims. And while that 
I, I don't know, you know, I don't know enough about 1974 New York City uh, commuter trains to uh, wax intelligent on that. There's many s- points in this film where they're shooting off their guns as a way to intimidate uh, their victims. And I just can't for the life of me believe that no one would hear those gunshots, even if a conductor is not going through that train and it's riding along tracks. I mean, there's occupied. We see that there's the cars behind this uh, uh luxury car are occupied with uh, basically, you know, coach economy uh, commuters. So the idea that none of those people would even hear those gunshots or kind of inquire as to what's going on, that's a bit of a tough stretch as well. Now these issues with the film's uh, plot in terms of it uh, not always having the best logic or in terms of it not really knowing what kind of commentary is trying to get across, do these get laid at the feet of the writer? The film was written by Eugene Price, who started out writing uh, scripts for low-budget films and then went strictly into TV work for the rest of his career. Uh, a couple of TV movies, lots of episodic television like uh, Marcus Welby, MD, uh, Capital, General Hospital. But I'm not entirely sure because I feel like watching this movie that there's stuff that was maybe written or maybe even filmed that was cut out. Now, the movie only runs 74 minutes without commercials. It was meant to fill in a a movie of the week 90-minute slot. And I just kind of almost left with the impression after watching it that they maybe they shot stuff and were like, oh, we've got too much stuff. We can't fill fill this time bracket, so let's just cut stuff out. And part of the reason I feel that way when watching it is because, for example, both Stuart Moss and Edward Francis characters, I mean, you find almost nothing out about their uh, background, like who they are. Like they get in a, they're in a car together, sharing a ride, and they talk about finances in this kind of vague way. And we know that Edward Francis' character works in an office and he has a limousine. And that's even more that we know about Stuart Moss's character. But the fact that they wouldn't even provide any kind of clue as to what they do, like they do with some of the other characters. You know, maybe they just didn't want to take the time to do that, but it also kind of feels like maybe they did and they cut that out. Um, and even uh, when they we have a moment with uh, one of the con- one of the criminals near the beginning of the film, uh, James Sloyan, he talks to this priest, like I mentioned before. He's got a scene where he talks to the priest about his headaches. The priest uh, talks to him during confession and says, are you still having those headaches? And literally... It cuts to the next scene like a millisecond after the priest says that. Like part of the word headaches trails over into the next shot, which is an exterior shot. And they don't really, they in fact, never discuss these headaches again, except that you're supposed to draw the conclusion as we see uh, James Sloyan's character becoming more erratic in his behavior throughout the heist. Uh, I think we're supposed to draw, the, obviously, the conclusion that he has some kind of mental health issues. But maybe I'm being too generous. Maybe it's just badly written or, or quickly written, or maybe there were rewrites on it um, that Price wasn't responsible for. You kind of wonder, though, if you're going to have these characters, again, going back to two of the passengers who are getting robbed, the characters played by Stuart Moss and Edward Franz, if you're going to have characters in this scenario who are so loosely and vaguely defined why have them at all? You know, I mean, I'm sure after listening to my breakdown of everyone in this movie, you're like, well, that's a lot of people. And especially in a movie that's 74 minutes, can't we lose a couple of them? I mean, do we really need to have... Uh, I mean, Stuart Moss's character is probably the best example. After we meet him in the high starts, he, he pretty much has virtually almost no function in the film. and Definitely nothing that couldn't have been handed off to another character. And compounding this even further is the fact that Moss is unbilled for this part. No mention in the opening or closing credits. And even though Moss was never any kind of A-list star, uh, he had been acting for 10 years. Tons of TV work. Uh, He's remembered for uh, guesting on a couple episodes of the original Star Trek. He had already by this time actually gotten top billing in uh, American International's horror B-movie The Bat People in which he was paired with his real-life wife, actress Marianne McAndrew of Hello Dolly fame. 
So you look at his character in Panacon the 522, you see how uh, poorly sketched it is. I wonder if that played any part in why he, uh, he didn't take credit for this. Um, this television movie aired on November 20th of 1974. It was an ABC Wednesday movie of the week. And that's only about a little more than a month after the American premiere, the uh, national premiere of the classic feature film, The Taking of Pelham 123, which for those not familiar with it, is where uh, Robert Shaw leaves a quartet of uh, villains to take over a subway car and demand ransom for it. And Walter Matthau plays the uh, transportation cop who goes up against him. And I wonder if uh, that, now that film shot in the end of 73. One, Pelham 123 shot from the end of 1973 to the beginning of 74 and was based on a novel that was already out. But I wonder if the reason Panic on the 522 exists is in part because they knew that film was going to be hitting theaters and they were trying to cash in on that. And if there was any kind of rush to 522's production uh, to kind of, you know, take advantage of the publicity around Pelham 123, maybe that could uh, account for some of the uh, shoddiness that happened and resulted on 522. Still, still, still crazy that Stuart Moss is not built at all in this film. I'm curious as to why I did try to check up on like newspapers.com, see if there were any articles about the making of the film. Couldn't really find anything. Moss, poor fellow, isn't even credited on the Internet Movie Database for this part. But regarding the acting in the film, I have, you know, my my props go to James Sloyan, who I think delivers the film's really most memorable performance as uh, Frankie, you know, the unhinged the unhinged one. Uh, he has this great voice, this great delivery to his voice. It's a little higher pitched, has a little bit of a lisp, so when he gets worked up, um, it's just got this really nice energy to it, this really nice vibe to it. And Dennis Patrick. Uh, someone I've always liked a lot. And like I said, he's great in the film Joe, which I just saw this past year. Phenomenal film. Check it out. Starring Peter Boyle, 1970 movie. Uh, Patrick has a, a, a really good moment squaring off against uh, James Sloyan's character. Um, after, uh, you know, the, the, the robbers board the train, the subway, under the subway, the uh, train car, and start collecting uh, people's jewelry and stuff. Uh, Patrick has uh, like a, a knife, a uh, paper, op- a letter opener of some sort tucked away, and he tries to uh, pull it on Sloyan, and they have a, a nice little confrontation there. It's kind of, I'm not sure what's going on in terms of other performances. I'm not sure really what's going on with Lawrence Lockenbill on this film. Uh, you know, he's generally like, I've always looked at him as like a solid, if not necessarily memorable actor, no offense to him, uh, but he dresses like, and this might not be his fault. This could be the wardrobe department. He dresses like he's a Broadway producer with like this uh, trench coat draped <laughs> or, or, or a longer coat draped over his shoulders. He's got like a fedora. And at times he's kind of talking with like the Southern accent, which seems to kind of come and go. So one moment he's just a typical commuter with his troubled marriage. Next thing you know, he sounds like a, a Southern aristocrat. And so I'm not sure <laughs> what uh, direction he was trying to go in with any of that everyone else is pretty pretty solid pretty on the money you know they're doing what they're supposed to do you know delivering that kind of like that stable character actor work uh santoni's performance as the um slow emile that's kind of the most cartoonish one in the whole film i don't know to what degree that again do you blame the actor for that the director what guidance did they give him how is it written in the script but just to kind of insert this, uh, like I said, of Mice and Men Lenny character in the middle of things. I mean, when he first shows up, when you first meet this character, he's holding up um, a Hasidic Jew who he thinks is part of the like the diamond business, the jewelry business, but who turns out not to actually have any money. And just he plays the part so cartoonishly that it's kind of really hard to take his character seriously. You really don't take any of these. That's another problem. You really don't take any of these uh, bad guys, for lack of a better word, you don't take any of them seriously when they board the uh, train because they're just presented as kind of like almost like moronic and cartoonish. And 
not really uh, demonstrating any kind of like, you know, pet up rage about where they are in life and their social standing. It's just kind of a trio of bums, frankly, who really uh, uh, bungle this robbery from the get go, you know, uh, that they don't even think in terms of like, oh, yeah, there's a bunch of wealthy people in this car, but that doesn't mean that they're going to have a, necessarily be carrying a, a bunch of cash. So it's always a problem when you're watching a movie and, uh, a, a movie built around a criminal act where the criminals um, don't really come across like they're of any weight or threat uh, to the people they're trying to take advantage of. And the victims um, don't help sell the gravity of the situation either, always. Um, in one of the film's kind of more ridiculous scenes, a little bit of a spoiler alert for those who are going to go onto eBay and actually track down a VHS of this, you know, when they when they board the train, they wear ski masks, the the criminals, which they're really, you know, they got some pretty sweet 1970s vintage ski masks. I've actually spent probably way too much time on eBay since watching this movie trying to find a uh, 1970s ski mask for myself after watching this. Probably one of the best things about the movie. But in a ludicrous scene, a scene that really uh, is used to escalate matters is Linda J. George convinces Rennie Santoni to remove his mask. And when I was first watching it, I assumed that this was some kind of ploy on her part to get an upper hand over the criminals and help them get back control of the train. But no, literally, she just feels bad for him that he's wearing this mask and he's probably really hot and uh, convinces him to take it off, which, of course, means everybody on the train now can identify uh, Emil and causes the other criminals to think, well, maybe we, we can't let these people go. Maybe we have to kill them all. Which brings you right back to a problem I just discussed a second ago. Okay, now you've you've elevated the stakes. You've gone from these criminals just wanting to pull off a robbery, and that puts um, our our cast in you know some kind of immediate but maybe non lethal danger as long as they comply. And now you've elevated to the point where okay, they they might actually kill these people. They might lose their lives, but because we don't really take these villains too seriously, we don't look at them as too threatening. Are we really going to buy the idea that they're going to like wipe out like eight or nine people just to uh, avoid being uh, identified for a robbery? I mean, they, they get into a discussion about that where uh, James Sloane's character, as he becomes more unhinged, really is afraid of going back to prison where he's been before and really wants to just kill all these people. And uh, Robert Walden's character is trying to reason out of it that that would obviously result in a, uh, a much worse sentence. But just the idea that that even is um, a thought that's crossing their mind, that that's something they consider, it instead of really selling them as more dangerous or making us feel like the situation's gotten a lot more threatening or worse, it just makes things seem even more ludicrous and cartoonish that they've they've uh, considering the, that as even a possible way of handling the situation. Now, the TV movie, this TV movie was directed by Harvey Hart. Hart was a Canadian-born director who, throughout his career, moved back and forth between filming stuff in the States and filming stuff in his native country. Uh, he worked in both uh, TV and film. He directed lots of uh, episodic TV, episodic TV uh, episodes of Peyton Place, of Columbo, Medical Center, um, Dan August. And he also did a number of other TV movies as well. Um, one of my... Uh, personal favorites of 1980. It's this uh, science fiction uh, TV movie called The Aliens Are Coming, which was uh, an attempt to launch a, a TV series that did not go over well, but it's a, a film I really enjoy a lot, and I think that'd be a fun one to cover later on in the on this podcast. Hart also directed uh, an episode of the original Star Trek, Mud's Women, and he did a number of feature films, some of which actually have uh, gone into... Uh, procure a really good reputation. He did Dark Intruder, which was a Leslie Nielsen horror movie set in uh, like the late 19th, early 20th century, which was an, actually a Universal's attempt to launch a TV series. It didn't get picked up, and they released it as a feature film. And Kino Lorber just released that on Blu-ray. That has a really strong cult reputation. He did the um, Karen Black, Christopher Plummer movie, The Picks, which is a really highly regarded uh, horror movie, mixture of horror and police work. 
Uh, he did the film adaptation of Fortune in Men's Eyes, the uh, the prison story. I mean, Panic on the 522, it was competently directed. Uh, nothing super memorable or unforgettable about it, but you know, no glaring mistakes either in terms of the directing, other than maybe, you know, what role Hart may have played in what we talked about with issues with the story and, and why things just uh, seem not to be explained or well sketched out. But yeah, Panic on the 522. I remember this VHS tape from when I was a kid. It was at a thrift store I went to and always kind of stuck with me. And uh, that's really what led me to track this down on eBay. Picked up a copy for like, you know, 10 bucks. Um, you know, it's too bad it's not more readily available. I think even when you have a, a TV movie like this, that really isn't any kind of uh, golden example, shining example of the genre of the decade, but it's still just, you know, entertaining to watch. It's still fun. And I wish that more of these were available and, and better quality, even if it was just streaming um, on like Prime or something. But hey, maybe you'll stumble across it at a yard sale someday, dust off the VCR, and uh, give this one a watch. Or someone will stick it up on YouTube. Panic on the 522. That was uh, this week's new watch. I think that about rounds things up for this episode of Carpet City Cinema. Thank you for uh, spending the time with us and catch you next week. <laughs>